in one of the suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya called the Bimutta Yatana Sutta. Anguttara Nikaya Book of Fives. The Buddha talks about five ways in which one can attain Samadhi. The first way is when one is listening to a Dhamma talk. When one is listening intently, giving 100% of your attention to the Dhamma talk to understand its meaning. At that time, one can also be free from the hindrances and one can attain Samadhi. Secondly, when one is delivering Dhamma talk, at that time also, one can attain Samadhi. Thirdly, when one is reciting the Dhamma, you have memorized it and now you are reciting the Dhamma, that also can bring about Samadhi. Fourthly, if one reflects or contemplates on the Dhamma that one had memorized, not really reciting, but just mentally contemplating or reflecting or investigating the Dhamma that one had memorized, that could also lead to Samadhi. And finally, if one attends to the Samadhi Nimitta, the cause for Samadhi to arise in during meditation, one can also attain Samadhi. Last night when you were trying to memorize all these memory aids, you were actually trying to focus your mind, right? Your mind was not able to run off elsewhere. You were trying to memorize and trying to recite what you had remembered. You were actually trying to apply the four R's. The first R, the second R. There's the first two rather, not all the four R's. When you have mastered the first two R's, then the third R will come in when you are doing the practice. You have to recollect what you memorized and you have to remind yourself to put that into practice. It's really very important. And like I said, if you cannot remember how you're going to put it into practice, you cannot. And I have to keep on reminding you again and again to accept, not to reject. Because despite my reminding you every day, people still reject. It doesn't sink into your mind. Accepting. Accepting all things as the product of causes and conditions is actually one aspect of right view. As you all know, right view is the beginning of the noble ifo path. It hits the noble ifo path. If you don't get your view right, then even though you may put in a lot of effort, you are mindful, and you get samadhi, these are all wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong samadhi.
I can give you a very good example of this wrong effort, mindfulness and samadhi. For example, a terrorist, a sniper. Don't you think he's got good samadhi? Don't you think he's got good mindfulness? Don't you think he's got effort? He's got all these things, right? But it's all wrong. Even though he may hit his target, but that's all wrong. Right view is of ultimate importance. If in order to walk the noble eightfold path, you must start off with right view. That's why in the process of doing vipassana, there are three steps involved. And the first step is right view. How are you going to view the things that you perceive? Talking about right view, if you look in the suttas, you will see that right view is defined differently in different suttas, according to who is giving the talk and to whom the talk is being given. To summarize in a nutshell all these different aspects of right view that can be found in the suttas, basically it is simply right view in respect of cause and effect. There is this standard, what we call mundane right view, which is belief in the law of karma, belief in life after death, belief in results of giving, belief in being grateful, to one's parents and so forth. That's a mundane right view. There's also another part of mundane right view which is connected with the law of cause and effect. When we talk about cause and condition, it's actually equivalent to the law of cause and effect. It's just I use the word cause and condition in a special way. Cause to refer to present circumstances and condition to refer to past conditioning. Other teachers might use these two words differently or synonymously, but I'm using it in a special way so that you can actually put that into practice in the course of your retreat. there is the law of cause and effect that is related to the physical world and there is the law of cause and effect that is related to karma and there is also the law of cause and effect related to mental and physical phenomena these are the three and then there is also the law of cause and effect related to the four noble truths this is really super mundane. Let's start with the first one, which is the law of cause and effect related to the physical world. This is very obvious. All the sciences, the pure sciences, are based on the physical laws of nature. 
The physical laws of nature also will depend on your environment, whether you are on planet Earth or within the solar system or whether you are in another galaxy or another universe, they have different sets of physical laws. Even within our solar system, even within the planet Earth itself, we have, in terms of physics, we have Newtonian physics and then we have quantum physics. Newtonian physics is concerned with massive bodies and quantum physics is concerned with minute bodies down to the subatomic particles or even smaller than that. These two laws of nature on the macro scale and on the micro scale operate differently. On the macro scale, on massive bodies, things seem to be very ordered and predictable. And that's why people can work out complicated formulas and complex formulas and send people to outer space, to an international space station, to the moon, mostly without hitches, but there are also accidents in between. Nowadays we have nanotechnology, they're producing all those stuff which are based on this quantum physics. Now in terms of quantum physics, we're not talking about certainties anymore. In Newtonian physics, we have certainties. We have the formula for gravity, we have the formula for speed and acceleration and velocity and so forth. But when you go down to the quantum world, it's a matter of possibilities and probabilities. It's no longer certainties. These are the laws of cause and effect in the physical world. Even then you can see that there is a range of laws for the micro and for the macro. Although Buddhism does not go down to that very minute detail, or maybe you could say it does in terms of the Abhidhamma, because the Abhidhamma goes down very minute detail in a very micro level. And although the Abhidhamma is not really the Buddha's words, it was developed out of the Buddha's teachings, particularly those found in the Sangita Nikaya. The aggregates, the sense bases, the elements, these were studied and then investigated by the Theras of old practitioners and they went into very minute detail in their meditation after they developed and attained to very deep states of samadhi. If your samadhi is deeper then the power of your mind becomes stronger. You could say it's analogous to different types of magnifying instruments. A simple magnifying glass compared to a simple microscope compared to an electron microscope. All these are magnifying instruments but each of them differ in their magnifying power. 
the Teras of old, the elders of old who were highly developed in the Asamadhi, they went very deeply to look into the physical and mental processes that are going on in the central being. And that's how they came up with certain theories and models in the Abhidhamma. Whether it's the Abhidhamma in Theravada or the Arbhidhamma in non-Theravada schools. Scholars have found out that although there seems to be a lot of similarities in the suttas and the sutras of the Agamas and the Nikayas, there seems to be a vast difference between the Abhidhamic concepts of Theravadin Abhidhamma and those of non-Theravadin Abhidhamma, particularly the Sarvastivadin Abhidhamma. Well, this could also be due to subjective experience and subjective classification of one's personal experience. In any case, to what degree of samadhi one needs to develop in order to be able to attain to enlightenment, to awakening, is really very individual. It depends on the individual. Maybe those terras of old a deep interest and inclination for Abhidhamma were those people who required a high degree of concentration of Samadhi in order to penetrate the Dhamma. Yet during the Buddha's time as far as I have read, all non-monks, all non-renunciants attained to various levels of awakening just by listening to the Buddha giving a talk. When I say non-monks, I mean lay people and devas. They did not have to go to an extended period of retreats to develop the popularly understood concept of jhana, absorption, concentration, in order to penetrate the Dhamma. All they needed to do was listen to the Buddha giving a Dhamma talk. and the end of the Dhamma talk, or at, during the Dhamma talk, they would attain the Dhamma Chaku or the Dhamma Eye, and then they would become sotapanas, stream enterers, mostly. There were some exceptions, like for example, the 500 fire ascetics. When they listened to the fire sermon, all of them attained to arahanship, one shot. Many, most lay people would just go to number one and become Sotapan and then be a Sotapan for a long time before they go on to the next level. But the five ascetics all became Arahan in one sitting. And it is said in the commentaries that the Buddha taught the Abhidhamma to the Devas. 
and didn't teach the Abhidhamma to lay people. Didn't teach it to monks either. He taught the Abhidhamma to the Devas. And the legend has it that he would send his psychic body up there. Sometimes his physical body would come down here to eat food. While his double is up there giving the talk, he would be coming down here. And Aisma Sariputta would serve him. And then he would give the gist of his teachings to Aisma Sariputta. And that's how the Abhidhamma, which was supposed to be preached to the Devas, came down to earth through Aisma Sariputta. Of course, this is just legend. This is what the commentary says. You cannot find any support in the suttas at all. When I was in Burma, I read somewhere, and I cannot locate the source now in the Pali commentaries or sub-commentaries. But I read somewhere in Burmese that the reason why the Buddha preached the Abhidhamma to the Devas instead of the human beings is that he must finish their whole Abhidhamma within one sitting. From beginning to end, you must listen from beginning to end within one sitting in order to get the whole picture and become enlightened. Well, he did that according to earth time in three months. That's just a few minutes up there. Who can sit still for three months listening to Abhidhamma from beginning to end? There's no human being who can possibly do that. That's the reason why he gave the Abhidhamma up there for the Devas. Because for them it's only a few minutes, two, three minutes. <laughs> for us it's three months. Coming back to the degree of Samadhi that is required... As I said, during the Buddhist time, as far as I know, all the non-monks, including Devas, they got enlightened or obtained various stages of enlightenment, awakening, by listening to the Dhamma that the Buddha was preaching. Probably Dhamma that is associated with the Four Noble Truths. Not Dhamma associated with the Dana or Sila, but it must be connected with the Four Noble Truths. And when someone is listening to a Dhamma talk, he is not in absorption concentration. If he were, he wouldn't hear any sound. If he's absorbed, how is he going to hear what the Buddha is saying? If he doesn't hear what the Buddha is saying, how is he going to get enlightened? And yet, the eight factor of the Eightfold Path, which is right Samadhi, is defined in some suttas as jhana. And a sotapan is defined as someone who is possessed of all the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, which means a sotapan must have at least first jhana. The jhana is not the absorption jhana, is the jhana that a lay person or a deva attains while he's listening to the Buddha is not an absorption jhana. It is actually a state of composure where the five hindrances have been suppressed, abandoned, and where 
the factors of where the mind is free from sensual desire, free from greed and hatred or aversion. And the mind also has initial and sustained application because he is listening and thinking about what the Buddha is saying in order to understand the message that the Buddha is trying to convey. There is thought involved. But because his mind is not assailed by any of the hindrances, it is it has composure. That's how I define composure. Composure means being the ability to stay to place your mind where you want to without being distracted by thoughts, feelings or perceptions. Without being distracted by the hindrances. Talking about the degree of concentration, you have a magnifying glass and then you have normal microscope and an electron microscope. Those people who have very deep samadhi, they can see things very minutely. You can see things arise and pass away very minutely. They can look at the five aggregates in an ultimate sense when there are no more thoughts. Nowadays, when yogis talk about watching the five aggregates, these are not really pure five aggregates. These are mixed with concepts and thoughts. But when you go to a thought-free state, there's no more thinking, no more conceptualizing. You just see the five aggregates in their ultimate form. Feeling is just feeling. Perception is just perception. Nowadays, when you talk about perception, we talk about memories, or visions and images, uh, this sort of perception. But when you get into the thought-free state, it doesn't come that way. There are no more verbal thinking. As I said, for non-monks during the Buddha's time, they got enlightened by listening to the Buddha. They are not in that very deep state of samadhi. They are not in a deep state of samadhi where they can just perceive the five aggregates without thought. They are still thought because they are listening to the Buddha and the Buddha is using concepts to convey his message. The degree of samadhi required by a person to get enlightened varies from individual to individual. Coming back to right view, I talked about the physical law of cause and effect. And I talked about uh, quantum physics and Newtonian physics as uh, different aspects of the law of nature in the physical world. And there's also the moral law of cause and effect, which is got to do with ethics. If you do something wholesome, then you'll get pleasurable and pleasant results. If you think, speak, or do something which is motivated by unwholesomeness, then that will lead to unpleasant results. That is the moral law of cause and effect. But the thing is, in Buddhism, the Buddha did not very precisely say to what extent the unpleasantness is if you create a bad karma. And the Buddha also did not say exactly when the results will take place. Why? Because the Buddha defined karma as intention. 
And as you all know, if you watch your intentions throughout the whole day, there are trillions and trillions of intentions one after another in your thoughts, in your speech, in your actions. And every intention is karma. Most of your actions here, whether it's mental, verbal or physical actions, they are motivated by desire. You want to do something, you want to get something, you want intellectual stimulation, you want sensual stimulation, you want to be free from suffering, you want to assuage your hunger, and so forth. These are all based on desire. Without desire, you cannot survive on this earth. Even an arahant has desire, but the desire will not carry forth to the next rebirth. The desire of an arahant is, for example, his bladder is full, he desires to go to the toilet. <laughs> if an arahant doesn't have desire, then how is he going to survive? If he's hungry, he desires to take food to fill up his stomach. If he's thirsty, then he desires water to quench his thirst. But as long as you have this body, you need to have desire to support it. If you're talking about intention and karma, intention equals karma, then we create karma every single moment that there is intention. And there is such a huge, inconceivable amount of karma, good and bad, and light and grave. How can anyone compute? Even the best computers in this world will not be able to compute which karma will give fruit at which time. Therefore, the Buddha said in Nangutra Nikaya, there are some things that are unthinkable. You should not think about it. And that is the result of karma. If you think about it, you either go crazy or half crazy. <laughs> because you can't, nobody can conceive of it. No computer can even work out your accounts. <laughs> but generally, the Buddha said that wholesome karma will give pleasant results. And unwholesome karma will give unpleasant results. Very, very general. To what extent of pleasantness, to what extent of unpleasantness cannot be defined. Now, what is wholesome and what is unwholesome? From the Buddhist point of view, although people say right and wrong are relative, I agree. But what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, these are not relative. According to the Buddhist point of view, these are absolute. Unwholesome, or in Pali, is called akusala, which literally means unskillful. Kusala means skillful, but it has been translated into wholesome or unwholesome. What is kusala, what is skillful, or what is wholesome? Is any action whether it's mental, verbal, or physical, that is motivated by non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And what is considered unwholesome or unskillful, akusala, is anything that is motivated by greed, hate, or delusion. In Pali, that's called loba, dosa, and moha. 
Now, the word greed may not really be a very appropriate translation for loba, because in English, when we say greed, most people understand it to mean desiring more than what you deserve. But loba means wanting something which you haven't got. It could be you haven't got something and you want it very badly, you keep on thinking of how to get hold of it. And then once you get hold of it, you hang on to it and don't want to let go. That is the nature of loba. The nature of loba is like a leech. If you are bitten by a leech and you try to pull out the leech, it's very, very difficult because the leash will just hang on, hang on and it's slippery and you try to pull, you cannot. You must know a technique of how to get rid of the leech. Same with loba. Loba is very insidious. It will hang on to its object that it wants and it won't let go. Even though you suffer, it won't let go. It still won't attach. Somebody was just sharing with me an interview. There's one yogi one female yogi whose boyfriend had decided that he didn't want her anymore. And she still cannot let go, even though she has been insulted in various ways, going to the house and the door is slammed at her, and the family members of the boyfriend also chase her out. But still, she cannot let go. She still want him. You see? That is Doba at work. And as you all know, the second noble truth is desire. The first noble truth is suffering. The second is the cause of suffering, which is craving or desire. Now, craving is another form of loba. There's a wide range of loba. As I said, the characteristic of loba is that it attaches and it grasps. It's like sticky stuff. It gets on you and then you refuse to part. It can vary from a very, very subtle attachment to liking. You like a cup of coffee or prefer a cup of coffee to a cup of tea. I like the taste. That's really considered loba. And then on the other hand, the other extreme is lust. You want something very, very badly. Desire in a very intense form. And this is usually accompanied by some sort of pleasurable feeling. Although Sometimes there's pleasure, but there's also a lot of heat involved. For example, you have very strong craving, you can feel your body heating up because of that passion, of that greed, that desire, of that wanting. And then the other root of unwholesomeness is dosa, or anger, or hatred. Again, dosa has a range. It varies from a very subtle dislike to intense anger and rage. But dosa is very easy to spot because it is unpleasant. The moment you feel unpleasant, you can be sure it's dosa. But loba is not always accompanied by pleasurable feelings. Sometimes it's pleasurable, sometimes it's neutral. It's kind of not easy to detect. Not as easy as Tosa. And then finally, Moha, or delusion. These are the three roots of 
unskillful actions or unwholesome actions, which are loba, dosa, and moha. I've already explained loba. Loba's quality or characteristic is to grasp, to stick on, refuse to let go, cling. Dosa's quality is the opposite. Dosa is like wanting to reject, wanting to push away, wanting to hit at something. That is the quality of dosa. Moha or delusion is bong bong gong gong. Yeah, blah blah, I don't know what to do. <laughs> that is the quality or the characteristic of moha. And when in your course of the meditation, sometimes when you're drowsy, that's when moha is at its peak. When you're drowsy, you cannot be aware of things. And even when you're mindful, it doesn't mean that you don't have moha or delusion. When you're mindful, you can still have delusion. How is delusion defined in a Buddhist sense? Everything in the Buddhist sense is defined in relation to the Four Noble Truths, in relation to liberation or the end of suffering. Delusion means you cannot see the true nature of reality. And what is the true nature of reality? The true reality in a sense of formations, constructions, fabrications. All phenomena that are the products of causes and conditions. Their nature is they are impermanent, they are unsatisfactory or suffering, and they are not self. That is their true nature. But when you are mindful, even though you are mindful, you can see how the comments arise in your mind. How the judgments arise in your mind, you can see the cause and the condition for this. But still there's moha because you still associate it with me, my thought, my feeling, my judgment. Moha is not easy, very, very difficult. Even though you have mindfulness also, there can still be moha. Because mindfulness, as I said, is immoral. It's neither good nor bad. It is an essential quality, mental state for all sentient beings. Mindfulness becomes right mindfulness only when it can lead you out of suffering. There is such a thing as wrong mindfulness that is found in the suttas. Wrong mindfulness is what leads you maybe to greater suffering. In the suttas, there's only, there are probably three types. One is called right mindfulness, the other one is called wrong mindfulness, and one more is just called mindfulness. Neither right nor wrong, just mindfulness. That sort of mindfulness probably refers to the essential quality of the mind that all sentient beings need. Wrong mindfulness is referring to a spiritual practice that is supposed to lead to liberation but does not. And right mindfulness is Mindfulness applied to a spiritual practice that leads to the end of suffering. You have spiritual mindfulness, which can be right or wrong, and then you have worldly mindfulness, which is neither right nor wrong. It's a worldly application.
if you try to look at the objects, you won't be able to see greed, hatred and delusion in the objects, can you? I mean, you can deduce by looking at somebody's behavior, but other inanimate objects you can't see. But how the mind responds or reacts to whatever is perceived through the senses, you can see. And you can see whether there's Dobha, Dosa and Moha in it. That's why in a sutta in the Sanghita Nikaya called Is There a Way Sutta? Kinu Kopri Yaya Sutta. In that sutta, the Buddha asked the monks a question. He says, Monks, is there a way which is not dependent on the five grounds of acceptance. First one is based on faith. You accept something based on faith. The second is you accept something based on your own likes, your own fancy. Why you like this? I just like it. I don't know why. That sort of attitude. The third is to accept something based on tradition. Because the scriptures say so, it must be true. That is because it is our custom to do so, that's why you believe and accept it. The fourth one is based on somebody else's theory. You're not such a great intellectual, but somebody gives you a theory of how things happen or how things are, and then you accept it. You accept something based on somebody else's theory. And then the final one is through your own theorizing. You are a great thinker. Come up with your own theory. So the Buddha says that, is there a way, without depending on any of these things, the first one is faith, which means to say, faith is like you believe in the scriptures, you believe in what I tell you, you believe in what the Buddha says, that is out of faith. So out of faith, out of fancy, out of tradition, out of somebody else's theory, or because of your own theory. Is there a way, without depending on these five grounds of acceptance, that can lead to liberation? or the destruction of the inflows. And then the monk said, Bhante, you are the Dhamma teacher. You tell us, we listen and we bear in mind. The Buddha told them, he says, there is a way. He says, if any of the six senses come into contact with this respective sense object, then if there is greed or hatred or delusion accompanying that mental response to what's happening at the six senses and that yogi or monk knows it when these unwholesome states are there and he knows it also when these unwholesome states are not there then the Buddha asked once a monk is able to verify that and see it through his own experience and then he accepts the fact that this mental state, this response has great hatred and delusion in it. Is that acceptance of that fact based on faith, fancy, tradition, somebody's theory or your own theory? It's not, right? It's direct personal experience. You see it for yourself. The Buddha says, that is the way. Just by watching whether your mind responds to the whatever is perceived to the senses, 
with greed, hatred, and delusion, or without greed, hatred, and delusion. If you can see that, that is a way that can lead to the end of suffering. Very simple. That's a way that you can practice, you can verify for yourself. This is one aspect of right view. Now going on to the right view of the Four Noble Truths. The law of cause and effect in regard to body and mind. Now you can see in the course of a practice when I ask you to do open awareness and then look back at the subject instead of the objects, then you begin to see there's a law of cause and effect. You can see cause and conditioning. Because the eye came into contact with an object, or because the ear hears a sound, and then that triggers off a memory. And that memory also figures off a whole train of thoughts, start to make a story out of it. You can see how the physical and mental processes connected with their body, they influence and affect one another. This is the law of cause and effect. The mind-body law of cause and effect. Then the final one is the law of cause and effect in relation to the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is also cause and effect. Because first noble truth is there is suffering. The second noble truth is there is a cause of suffering. Cause of suffering is craving. The third noble truth is there can be a cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a way that leads to the cessation of suffering. We look at these four noble truths. The first one, there is suffering, is a result. The second noble truth is a cause, cause and effect. The first noble truth is an effect. The second noble truth is the cause. Then the third noble truth is there is a cessation of suffering. This is the effect. And then the fourth noble truth is there is a way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is the cause. Four noble truths are cause and effect. Basically, right view is all about cause and effect. Another aspect which is not related to cause and effect is right view in regard to the three signs of existence. That everything is anicca, dukkha, anatta. They are impermanent, suffering and not self. But however, if you see these three signs, particularly if you see impermanence, you can see things arising and passing away. You can see how, for example, when you're watching a breath or watching a rising and falling, the rising and falling occurs in staccato, in like steps. Or you can see things passing away quickly. Well, you see anicca. It's just like when in the old days, when you look at the cathode ray tube of your television screen, you see a lot of pixels and dots, they are twinkling and moving all the time. You see that you can see an impermanence, right? It's impermanence. <laughs> but you don't get inside. <laughs> the scientists all over the world, they can see impermanence. Use an electron microscope, they can see things moving all the time. And they can calculate using a mathematical formula and find out that an atom is largely 99% empty space. I mean, they can calculate, but they can't really see. <laughs> they measure through their instruments. It's not enough just to see things arising and passing away. You need to see 
how they arise and how they pass away. That is coming back to the law of cause and effect. How they arise and how they pass away, these are all due to cause and condition. They are products of causes and conditions. This is the very fundamental right view, that whatever we perceive through our senses, particularly the five senses, and also our mundane thoughts, are all products of causes and conditions. And because they are products of causes and conditions, they are impermanent. That means they come and go, they change, and they are suffering or unsatisfactory because there's no way you can stop them from arising and passing away. Like some people were saying, I don't feel that I'm making much progress. I've been here two days and my mind is still chattering away, one thought after another. Well, you are seeing Anicca Dukkha Nata. The thoughts are changing all the time and you're suffering because you can't stop it. And you can't stop it because it doesn't belong to you. It's due to cause and condition. Don't complain if you have a lot of thoughts, especially if you don't get caught up in the thoughts. The thoughts just come and go, but you don't make a story out of them, you don't proliferate them, they just come and go, come and go. That's good. You're seeing anicca, you're seeing impermanence, you're seeing suffering, not self, no control, there's no one there, they just come and go. And that is very much better than feeling drowsy. You're feeling drowsy, you've got no chance to watch anything, you just unclear, you're deluded. When you have all this, your mind is agitated, you're restless and you see all these things, you can still step back and look at them. And if you are patient enough and you have the right attitude, just watch them come and go, but you don't try to push them off and you don't try to proliferate them, then automatically they will lose steam and they will settle down. The thoughts will fade away. There's one yogi here who's so used to thinking all her life that now no more thoughts, she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> when there was a lot of thoughts, it's my mind has so many thoughts, but now when there are no more thoughts, she's lost. She doesn't know what to do. <laughs> That's why in other anger, the first A is accept. Accept or attitude, whichever way. The attitude is to accept. Accept what? Accept everything that occurs in your field of awareness as products of cause and condition. If you have this right view, this right attitude, then you won't be bothered by those thoughts. Otherwise, if you have this wrong view that I come to a meditation center, I'm doing a meditation retreat, I've got such a short space of time, you know, my mind might settle down within this time period. When I sit here, you know, it shouldn't be drowsy, it should not have so many thoughts, then you're looking for trouble. You're not accepting, you're trying to be a control freak. And all of us busily involved in your worldly affairs, you have been conditioned and trained to be control freaks. You have targets, you have deadlines to meet, you have to get things done according to the wishes of your superiors, to your targets. When you come into meditation, you must put all this aside. It's a different world altogether. Here you are not in control. You are just an observer seeing how things are out of control and they arise due to cause and conditioning. This is the first principle 
first right attitude is accept all things, don't reject, follow or ignore. If you reject, that's dosa. If you follow, that's loba. If you ignore, that's moha. <laughs> and you don't do any of these three, you are trying to cultivate aloba, adosa, amoha. <laughs> Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That's why this other anchor will lead you to the path of liberation. But when you use other anchor for pure samatha practice, you can dispense with the third don't. You follow essentially the same thing. You accept that all things happen, uh, products of causes and conditions. You won't get mad at yourself for not quieting down because once you get mad at yourself for not quieting down, then you're agitated, you cannot get samadhi, whether it's doing samatha or vipassana. For doing pure samatha, you also use the same other anchor. The first A is to accept all things like as products of causes and conditions. The second one is don't reject, don't follow, but you ignore. That's why in Samatha, no wisdom. You just know Loba, no Dosa only. But then Moha is still there because you don't look at things to understand them. You just ignore everything. You just come back to your object to stay still. The next one is A. Instead of acknowledging them in pure Samatha practice, you don't acknowledge those objects. Any thoughts arise, just literally point and shoot, hit and run. Because you just want to get rid of the thoughts and then you come back to your object as soon as possible. You are not concerned at all about what the thought is about. You don't want to know what thought it is. It's just a distraction. Whatever it is, get lost. I want to come back to my object. You still use the other anchor. The first one is accept. The second one is don't reject, don't follow. And the next A is... Instead of acknowledge, you abandon. You abandon by ignoring. And then anchor. You don't anchor to the five senses, you anchor to your single object. However, if you are doing open awareness, you can anchor to the five senses. If you use this samatha as an anchor for doing open awareness, you can still get composed without wisdom. Because as I said, is based on a 5-6-1 feature. If the mind is focused on one single thing, then you won't run off and think of other things. The mind becomes very composed. Same, when you're doing open awareness, if you don't investigate, you are just contented with anchoring your mind to the five senses and not allowing it to drift off to think and to ruminate. That you can also get composure. becomes very nice and peaceful, thought-free. If you don't start to investigate, then you get stuck there. Nice and peaceful, but no wisdom. But if you start to acknowledge right from the beginning, even though you don't try to incline your mind to understand cause and condition yet, from the very beginning, you don't reject, don't follow, don't ignore, but acknowledge and then anchor yourself to the five senses, you are laying the path for Vipassana to come in easily, to transit to Vipassana. This is very important, right view. Today I talked about right view being very important. It's the first factor in the Noble Path, and I talked about various types of right view. 
and ending with right view in the other anchor formula. I hope you can remember what I said tonight. You want some nursery rhymes? <laughs> Enough for tonight. Any questions? Suffered enough. Question or is that a statement? Give you a simile. It's like a blind man, a person who is born blind by birth, would never be able to conceive of what a person who is, has normal eyesight can see. Even if a person who has normal eyesight tries to explain to him what beauty of the sunset or whatever, you think he can understand? <laughs> Same lah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just, just for feel comfortable, is that because I heard it from somebody in the monastic, I just like to have some sense of reassurance that you will not be nothing. No, there's a problem, you see, you can only think of black and white. A person who is born colorblind also cannot see colors, can see only black and white. To him, if you talk about other colors, that's like, what are you talking about? So I take it that's more to it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> He cannot conceive, he has gone beyond life and death. It's not annihilation. <laughs> okay, I think enough for tonight. Tomorrow I want to start the meditation at 6.30 when it's bright. Why? 
Because I want you all to do panoramic awareness. Panoramic awareness. I want you to stand by below the kitchen. There's a stretch of road. When it's bright enough for you to have a panoramic view of the hills, then I'll give you a guided meditation there. Standing. Have a panoramic view of things. And then to give you a better idea of how to practice open awareness, how to put your attention in space and be aware of things happening. Because people don't seem to get it. We start tomorrow at 6.30 when it's bright. From 6 to 6.30, you do your own practice and I'll come only at 6.30. One thing is the other anchor, you say free and easy touch and go, which means the object, you're just going to alight briefly on it and then you're going to move to another object. But then here, you say in the past months, uh, you're going to investigate. And knowledge means you're going to investigate the causes and conditions. It's no longer... Touch and go. I said just now. If you just touch and go, then you are doing samatha practice. Because now I'm just trying to make you composed. When the mind is composed using this other anchor principle, then I say when your mind is composed, then you should incline your mind to verify the three characteristics and the cause and conditioning. You incline your mind, after that you come back to free and easy touch and go. But because you incline the mind, the mind will automatically be able to verify whatever is happening if the causes and conditions are there, if it is matured enough, if it is ripe enough. If not, no wisdom. We just get calmness. Hope that answers the question.